0: Thank you, Ron. Appreciate that. We're going to be in Genesis 1 today. If you would uh, grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis 1. A couple of months ago, I traveled and left my Bible at home and had to read the text for a sermon off my phone. I felt like I had to get saved all over again after doing that. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 uh, this morning we're going to be looking specifically at verses 24 to 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 to 28. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, Dad does not buy you a car. Dad will, however, buy you an experience. And what that means is when you've graduated, you get to pick a place you'd like to go with dad and we take a trip. And that's where I basically bankrupt all my frequent flyer miles that I've accrued to that point. When our oldest son, Jeff, graduated high school, I did not need to ask where we were going to be going. I knew where we would be going we would be going to the beaches of Normandy, France, specifically Omaha Beach, where on June 6, 1944, the first wave of army rangers hit the beach to invade Europe and begin freeing it from the clutches of Adolf Hitler. And Jeff, being a history buff like his dad, wanted to go stand on that hollowed ground, and he wanted to see the American cemetery with all those white crosses representing the lives that were sacrificed for our freedom that day on June 6, 1944. And if you saw the first 30 minutes of the movie Saving Private Ryan, you understand how significant that location is. Because the first wave of Army Rangers that hit the beach that day sustained 80% casualty rates. And there were reasons for this. The first was the tide charts had been wrong. The guys were told they were gonna get dropped into water that was roughly six feet deep. No, it was 25, 30 feet deep. The guys are carrying 100 pounds of weaponry and many of them go straight to the bottom and drown without getting a shot off. Those that don't drown survive only by ditching their weaponry, but now they've got a challenge. They've got to get across a beach where they're being fired at from in front and the sides and they have to navigate that beach with no weapons. And as Jeff and I were standing there looking at all those white crosses at the American Cemetery there at Omaha Beach, Dad said to me, let's go down, or Jeff said to me, Dad, let's go down to the water. Let's wade out into the water and then walk back toward the beach the way our guys would have I mean, it was just an unbelievable father-son moment. And I remember the French tour guide yelling at us in French, come on, come on, you're holding up the whole group. I'm like, hey, babe, we saved your butts in this war. We're going to stay right here and enjoy this father-son moment. Thank you very much. But uh, now you know why I'm not a diplomat. But as I was standing there, I was struck with this realization. What would it feel like to engage when you don't have the tools you need to engage. Because that's exactly what happened with our guys on June 6th. And men and women, I want to speak somewhat topically today to you. I am a firm believer in expositional, exegetical teaching of the text, and that should be the normal diet of a church. And I'm thankful through your pastor, Jeremy, that's precisely what you get here today. But there are occasions where it is important to look at what the Bible speaks to topically for the purpose of making sure our biblical worldview is well-informed. And so today, I am going to speak a little more topically than I will exegetically for the purpose of helping us navigate a very unique time in our nation's history. I want to talk about what it means to make a case for life on hostile turf and I'll tell you why that's significant because many of you probably feel especially lately as our Supreme Court thankfully has reversed Roe v Wade and has said there is no constitutional right to an abortion uh, in the constitutional by the way that was a correct decision and I can rejoice over that and it's very very good news but men and women you've probably noticed The heat has been turned up on us as pro-lifers. We are getting hit with all kinds of attacks we didn't imagine before. We've even got people twisting scripture to make it look like the Bible supports a pro-abortion worldview. And the reason why this topic of making a case for life on hostile turf is significant is, I imagine it could be very tempting for some of you to feel like that landing craft gate is opened up and you've now been dumped on a beach where you're under fire and you feel way in over your head like you don't know how to engage as a Christian with a hostile culture on an issue that is so central to God's heart and you feel outgunned and overwhelmed. And today I want to give you some tools to engage. And part of our problem right now is This battle over abortion is heated for one reason, and it has to do with what our text just said. Here's why abortion is so controversial in our culture. It's not because it's morally unclear. It's brutally clear. The reason why the abortion debate is heated is because we as a nation are having a debate over one question right now, who counts as one of us and the debate is about will we accept a biblical view of human value or are we going to accept a secular view of human value that quite frankly as I shall uh, show dehumanizes all of us that's why this debate is so heated that's why the slavery debate was heated a century and a half ago it was about the same fundamental question we're looking at today who counts as one of us and we as biblically grounded Christians have to know how to engage that debate. And it gets difficult because the secular culture on newscasts, in academic journals, in popular journals, on social media has redefined what it means to have faith. You and I think of faith very differently than our secular friends. When they hear us make a case for the pro-life view, they accuse us of imposing our faith on people, but their definition of faith is very different than ours. Here's the Christian definition of faith, trust based on evidence. The secular view is you believe because there's no evidence, you take a blind leap There's nothing under you to sustain what you believe, and when it comes to an issue like abortion, you're just believing because that's what your preference happens to be. That happens to be your blind belief, but there's nothing substantial underneath your pro-life view. And they take everything that relates to a biblical worldview, and they reduce it to that secular view of faith that is a blind leap in the dark. Well, that's not the biblical view. Hebrews 11 speaks of faith being the evidence of things not seen. For example, I had faith when I flew here yesterday. I had faith the plane would get me here. I looked up in the cockpit. There's two guys in uniform with thousands of hours of flying experience. I was on a a modern jetliner with state-of-the-art technology and backup systems all over the place. I was on a reputable airline. Delta stands for don't expect luggage to arrive, but you will. (laughs) And I had faith that I was able to exercise, but please hear me. It was not a blind leap in the dark. It was trust based on evidence. And since the Dobbs decision on June 24th, what pro-lifers are being told over and over again is that there's nothing substantial to your belief other than blind faith. And in reality, what's really going on in our culture is a much larger battle over who counts as one of us. And isn't it interesting that the very arguments we're hearing as pro-lifers were heard a century and a half ago against abolitionists. Abolitionists who opposed slavery were told that they were imposing their narrow sectarian religious views on others. They were told that slaves were less than human. They were told that religion should be kept out of politics. They were told that it's one thing to personally oppose slavery, but it's wrong to impose that belief on others. These are not new arguments. In fact, I'm convinced Satan just trots them out about every hundred years when there's a new victim class in view so that they can be used to dehumanize people that are made in God's image. And for us today, I want to focus on three key questions, and I think these three questions will help us be good ambassadors for Christ on an issue like abortion. The first question we're going to look at is, what is the unborn? And I'll explain why that's going to be so essential to our understanding. The second question we want to look at is, what is the source of human dignity? What is the foundation for human dignity? And third, I want to look at the question of what is our duty? What is the unborn? What is the source of human dignity? And what is our duty as human beings? And if we're clear on these questions, I believe we can be good ambassadors. We, be, we will be equipped to engage on that beach that God has dropped us in on. And men and women, this may be controversial, but here goes, we are all apologists now. With the Supreme Court returning the abortion issue to the individual states, that means whether unborn children are protected or relegated to the dumpster comes down to how your friends and colleagues vote. It comes down to their thinking on abortion, and their thinking will not align with a biblical worldview if we aren't communicating that biblical worldview. So that's what this is about today. So let's look at that first question, what is the unborn? Now in the scripture, what we just read a moment ago is that all human beings bear the image of God. And before we go any further, let's get a biblical foundation of what it means to be human. And that foundation looks like this. Here in its simplest form, is what the pro-life view looks like biblically. Premise one, all humans have value because they bear the image of God. Genesis one teaches this in the new covenant. We just read it, or the old covenant. James chapter three teaches it in the new covenant. In fact, it's interesting in James chapter three where James is really teaching about the power of the tongue. He makes the point that when we gossip about people, when we tear others down with the things we say about them, when we slander them, that is particularly egregious to God. And James gives us the reason, because it's an assault on the very image of the Creator in that person. So both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant teach about the importance of us bearing the image of God. Premise two in that argument goes like this. Because humans bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. Exodus 23, 7 teaches this. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 teaches this. Matthew 5, 21 teaches this. Okay, let's take those first two premises. All humans have value because they bear the image of God, and because they bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. Well, how does, that rep- how does that apply then to abortion? Here's how. The science of embryology is clear as can be that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. They aren't just part of another human being like skin cells on your body. Rather, they are from the beginning distinct, living, and whole human beings. So let's keep going with our syllogism. All humans have value because they bear the image of God. Because they bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent, uh, the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. Given the unborn are human, abortion is the shedding of innocent blood. Therefore, the commands of Scripture that forbid the shedding of innocent blood apply to the unborn as they do everyone else. You know why this is important, men and women? Because what's happened since Roe v. Wade, there has been a full court attempt to disregard that clear teaching of Scripture. And here's a typical thing I've heard in the news over and over again since Roe was cast down. Well, the Bible nowhere mentions abortion. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, thou shalt not have an abortion. It's nowhere there at all. This is what you'll hear Oprah say. It's what you'll hear a lot of, of candidates say who are running for public office right now. Nowhere does the word abortion appear in the Bible. Question, how does it follow that because a particular word is not mentioned in the Bible, we can do what that particular word represents? In other words, how does it follow that because the word abortion does not appear in the Bible, it's okay to have one. Uh, By the way, is there a passage in the Scripture that says, thou shalt not use neighbor for shark bait? It's not there, you won't find it. But does that mean it's okay to do that? Of course not. It doesn't follow that whatever the Bible doesn't expressly condemn, it therefore condones but this is the rhetoric that's being set out there. Now, I'm going to tell you why the word abortion doesn't appear in the Bible, just so you can get a sense of this. When we look at the Scripture, what the Bible is, is not a systematic ethics book. A lot of people read it that way, and that's not quite the right way to approach it. The Scriptures are written to God's covenantal people in particular times And the Scriptures are, though applicable to all of us, though inerrant, though absolutely authoritative is the Word of God, we can't just read our own modern experience into things and superimpose on the text something that wasn't meant for the original hearers. So let's ask this question. Who were the Scriptures written to? Well, in the Old Testament, the Hebrews. In the New Testament, the church. Why is the word abortion not found in scripture? Here's why the people the scriptures were written to were not tempted to kill their own children through abortion. Think about the Hebrew culture for a moment. That Hebrew culture, human beings gained honor by having lots of children. Think for a moment about the nation of Israel. You are surrounded by hostile nations if you don't have a lot of kids those nations swallow you up so an ancient hebrew culture needs to have a lot of kids is abortion going to get a foothold in that kind of culture not in a million years how about this was barrenness a curse or a blessing in the old testament a curse think of the story of samuel's mother beating her chest at the altar, pleading with God to give her offspring because her barrenness was a curse and a shame to her. In a culture where barrenness is a curse, is abortion abortion likely to get a foothold? Not at all. What about this? Children are expressly seen as a heritage from the Lord, a blessing, and the more you have, the better. Is abortion likely to get a foothold in that culture? No, this is why the Bible's silent on abortion. Not because the biblical authors permit it, but because you didn't need to talk about abortion to a group of people who saw children as a gift, who had to have a lot of kids to survive. That culture is not going to be celebrating abortion the way our culture does. So no wonder the Bible is silent. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that the Bible reflects and actually underscores something that we know to be true from science, and that is from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct living and whole human being. Now, I know for some people this seems hard to grasp. They look at a picture of an early embryo that appears to just be a a clump of cells, and they think, well, how can you say that's a human being when it looks like under the microscope, and you need a microscope to see an early embryo because it's the size of a dot at the end of a sentence. And they look at that and they say, I just don't see a baby there. And they're right. It's not a baby, but it is a human being at the earliest stages of development. And sometimes our intuitions are wrong about the unborn, like they can be wrong about a lot of things. And to use an example I used last night for those of you that were there, If you look at our understanding of cameras, you can get a sense about how we sometimes need to have our viewpoint adjusted. Those of you in the room under the age of 40, you need to understand there was a time when we did not take pictures uh, with our phones. We had these devices called cameras. Cameras had a lens, a shutter would open up, the light would come through and record images on this stuff called film. Film was expensive, and we did not waste it taking pictures of food, (laughs) all right? Uh, Now, the way it would work for those of you youngins under the age of 40, you would shoot 36 pictures, you would then take the film out of the camera, the things I have to explain to the younger generation pastor, uh, you put the film in a little canister, you drive to the far corner of the neighborhood supermarket where there was a little yellow and white shack called Photomat. You would drop your pictures off, wait a month and a half for them to come back, and half of them would be overexposed. How many of you remember those dark days? Yeah, some of you are going, you're preaching gospel truth, bro, keep going. Now, The Polaroid camera of course fixed that because with a Polaroid camera you shoot the picture, it spits the picture out and you shake it for two minutes and voila, you got your pic. Pretend we're on a safari in Mexico and all of us in this room have Polaroid cameras but you're the lucky one. You're at the front of the safari and we're deep in the jungles of Mexico and you've got your Polaroid camera all ready to go. You shoot that pic and lo and behold, You just happened to capture, with your picture, a black jaguar midair jumping across the trail in front of us. Now, if you know black jaguars, they're almost never filmed in the wild. You not only got them in the wild, you got them midair. And you are breathless with anticipation, waiting for that picture to emerge because you know National Geographic will pay you huge bucks for it. But while you're waiting for that picture to emerge, I come up behind you. I yank the picture out of your hand, I tear it up, are you going to be angry at me? Yeah, you'll kill me even if you are pro-life, right? What if I glibly replied, what's the big deal? I didn't see a jaguar there. All I saw was a white piece of paper with a brown smudge on it. Would that satisfy you? You'd look at me with your eyes on fire and you'd say, the jaguar in that picture in that polaroid picture was already there we just couldn't see him yet because he was still developing from the one cell stage men and women you were already there we just couldn't see you because you were still developing and you know what the biblical scriptures say about you at the one cell stage it says that all humans bear the image of god you were a human You are an image bearer at that one cell stage, and thus the same commands against the shedding of innocent blood apply to you at that one cell stage as they do to you today. That's the biblical case answering the question, what is the unborn? The second question we need to be clear on though is what makes us valuable? The scripture we just read says that all humans bear God's image, but we're part of a culture that does not accept human equality the way the Bible teaches human equality. The secular culture says that what makes us valuable is not that we equally share the image of God. What makes us valuable is we have certain functions we can perform. Now bear with me for just a moment. Here is the heart of the debate in the culture. There are two rival worldviews knocking heads right now. And you see this in our politics, you see it in our culture, you see it in the arts, you see it in our music, theater, it's all over. Here are the two rival worldviews. The first worldview is known as the performance view of human value. It says that being human is not enough. You being a human being is not enough. Instead, you have to be what we call a person who has certain cognitive abilities like self-awareness, like the ability to feel pain, like the ability to interact with your environment. And if you do not have those things, if you cannot perform at that level, you are not a person with a right to life. That's the performance view. Rivaling that is the view we just read in Genesis 1. That all humans have value simply because of the kind of thing they are. We call this view the endowment view. This is what our founders spoke of in the Declaration of Independence when they wrote that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are endowed by their creator. The endowment view says what makes you valuable is not what you do functionally, but what kind of being you are and in the case of scripture you're a being who bears the image of our maker now part of what makes this confusing for people is we think okay well how do we then explain human dignity I mean you mean to tell me the beach bum and the university professor are equal in dignity yeah they are biblically let me explain that the beach bum who wastes his life on the beach doing nothing but working on his tan and thinking about waxing his surfboards actually sounds like kind of a good life on some days, doesn't it? But let's go ahead and follow this through. He is sitting there, and we think, well, he's not doing much with his life. He doesn't have the same dignity that someone who's really applied themselves does. You're right in one sense. The beach bum does not have the same attributed dignity that the university professor has. The university professor has dignity we attribute to him in virtue of his accomplishments. But here's the thing, the beach bum and the university professor are equal in their fundamental or intrinsic dignity because each of them equally bears the image of God. Men and women, this is a freeing truth. I'm talking to some people today and I don't know who you are, But you've been tempted to think that the entire foundation of your dignity, your value is in ruins, maybe even because of choices you've made, maybe even self-inflicted things you've done, and you think, "I I could never be valuable in God's sight because of those choices I've made. And you know what the teaching of Scripture is? Two things. Number one, as a Christian, your position for God, before God, is not based on what you've done, but on what Christ has done for you. Legally, theologically, you are declared not guilty of your sin because Jesus came, died on a cross, stood in your place condemned, absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf so that if your trust is in Him... You get adopted into God's family. And you know what, men and women? Your being adopted into God's family has absolutely nothing to do with what you've achieved in terms of attributed dignity. It has everything to do with what Christ did on your behalf. We just sang a song where a scripture was up there from Isaiah 6. And some of you, as you were reading that passage, may have had the thought I had. Here is Isaiah. The most holy man in all of Israel. He's shown a, a vision of the holiness of God, and it absolutely undoes him. He is absolutely undone. He says, Woe is me, I'm condemned, a man of unclean lips. And notice God provides a solution for that an angel is sent to purify his lips. Isaiah cannot purify himself. Men and women, if the most holy man of all of Israel cannot stand before a holy God, none of us can. What gives us our positional dignity, our value before God is what Jesus did for us, not what we do for ourselves performance-wise. But there's another aspect of this. It is true that some of us think, I, I'm undone, my career has suffered terribly because of choices I've made. And we're tempted to think that my value before God could no longer be what it once was. On the biblical view, your value is grounded in whose image you bear, not the functions you perform. That's why we say that embryo that cannot yet think, is not yet cognitively aware, is nonetheless a human being with a right to life. Because we're judging that embryo not on his performance but on whose image he bears. Now, of course, there's going to be people who say that embryo is different than you and I. That embryo is not like us. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't have the same abilities you and I have. And all of that is true. But here's the question. Do any of the differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult that's here today, justify killing you back then? There are four differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult. And none of them matter, men and women. You can think of these differences by thinking of the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D, SLED. And the question is not, please hear me on this, not are there differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult. The question is, do those differences matter such that we can say it would be okay to kill you as an embryo, but not now? Let's look at those differences. Size, there's your S in that acronym, SLED. You were smaller as an embryo. But since when does body size determine your value? Men are generally larger than women. Do they deserve more rights than women simply because they're larger? Shaquille O'Neal was a seven foot two basketball player, a foot taller than everybody here today. But he's not more human and valuable because of it. What about E, your environment? You were in the womb, now you're out. But how does where you are determine what you are? If you drove at least 17 miles to come to church today, raise your hand. Impressive. 27 miles? 37 miles? Okay, this is getting scary. 57 miles. Okay, the guy in the back finally put his hand, hand down. 807 miles, I win. Now, <laughs> if a journey, sir, of 47 miles did not change you from one kind of thing to another... How does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to valuable human being we can't? And the answer is, if you weren't already human and valuable, changing your address isn't going to get it done. Your size, your level of development, by the way, I skipped level of development, I probably ought to cover that one. You were less developed as an embryo, and the answer is, so what? Two-year-olds are less developed than 20-year-olds. Does it follow the two-year-old is less human? Development doesn't tell us anything. And finally, degree of dependency. Yeah, you depended on your mother for survival, and my answer is so. How does that matter? Take conjoined twins like the Henschel twins. You've probably seen their picture. Brittany and Abigail. Two young women now in their early 30s that are joined literally at the hip. You look at the picture of them, and the press has followed them since infancy. One set of legs, two body trunks, two shoulders, two heads. These girls cannot be separated without killing both of them. Does it follow that neither has a right to life because neither can live without the other? Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. But men and women, it's the biblical worldview that can tell us why Brittany and Abigail have a right to life. The secular worldview cannot. I want to wrap up with this question today. What is our duty? And I want to give you that duty In a sentence, God specifically says in this passage that He created man in His image, that He assigned the animals their place, humans their place, and that each thing was created according to its kind. And we can read that and just kind of treat that as a, well, kind of an abstract, nice little piece of scripture for us to ponder, or we can actually take it in and say, what does it mean then for us to acknowledge fellow image bearers who are set apart by kind from all other creation? And that means this, men and women, we are to love our fellow image bearers, including those in the womb. What does it mean to love biblically understood? Biblically understood, love is not a mere feeling. It's not a mere passion. It is a behavior. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. The good Samaritan not only felt pity for the beating victim, he took pity on the beating victim. I mean, the text is very explicit. He happens on a man who is his natural enemy. Remember, uh, Jews and Samaritans do not get along. But this Samaritan man picks up this Jewish guy, puts him on his own animal, takes him to the innkeeper after banding up the guy's wounds, says to the innkeeper, innkeeper, here's my American Express card, max it out doing whatever you need to help this guy, and when that's done, here's a visa, max this out to help him. That's a modern translation, but you get the idea. Do whatever is needed, lavish love and sacrifice. That's what Jesus meant when he talked about loving our neighbor. And though none of us will ever do this perfectly in a way that merits salvation, that is the standard of what biblical love looks like. We are to love our unborn neighbor. And men and women in a post-row world, that's going to cost us something. You may remember the movie Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler has given all his money to rescue Jews off the death camp list. If you saw the movie, you know what he did. He would go to the leaders of the Nazi death camps and say, don't kill these Jews, I will give you money for them here. And he'd buy the Jews off the death camp list so they wouldn't be killed. And there's this scene near the end of the movie where the war has finally ended. Oscar is saying goodbye to all the Jews that he has ransomed with his own money. And he turns to the leader of the Jewish people who has just handed him a ring as a token of their affection for him. And he's looking at this ring, and you can tell he's somewhat troubled. And he, he drops it, he picks it up, and he says to the leader of the Jewish people, I could have got more out. I didn't do enough. I could have got more out. And the leader of the Jewish people says to him, Oscar, There's 1,100 of us alive today because of what you did. And Oscar says, I wasted so much money. You have no idea how much money I wasted. I could have got more out, and I didn't do it. He then looks at his jacket, and he's got a decorative pin on here. He rips it off his lapel and says, this pin, I kept this pin. They would have given me two more people for this pin, but I kept it. I could have got more out, and I didn't do it. I didn't do enough. And then, of course, he, after all of this, he looks at the car that's going to take him away and says the same thing. I kept this car. And the scene culminates with him breaking down behind his automobile, weeping profusely, saying, I didn't do enough. I could have done more. And this from a man who used his own resources to buy people off the death camp list. And the question for us this morning as we draw to a conclusion is, are we taking our Holocaust of fellow image bearers as seriously as that man took his in the 1940s? And what implications does that have for how we live, how we vote? how we support local crisis pregnancy centers and ministries like Lighthouse, how we as a church minister to wounded men and women who abortion has touched their lives in very deep and profound ways. We are all defenders of image bearers now, not just those who do it full time. We all have to take this up. We're all on that beach. We're all under fire, but guess what, men and women? Surrender is not an option. We've got to equip ourselves to engage. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you see us as valuable, not in virtue of what we do. You see us as valuable because of whose image we bear. We thank you that despite our sin, which is great, which is overwhelming, We can cry out even as the prophet Isaiah did, woe is me, and yet you provide a solution for our sin in the person of Jesus who bore it completely for us on our behalf. I pray for any wounded by abortion today that you would be their healer, you would be the one who restores them into right relationship with you, and I pray you would give us all courage to defend those made in your image for your son's sake. Amen. Amen. If you are able, please stand with us.